You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 201 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In December 1860, Frederick Douglass, the former slave and America's most prominent black abolitionist, welcomed the news of South Carolina's secession from the Union. While heaping scorn upon the Palmetto State's reckless act, Douglas all but thanked the secessionists for the opportunity that their madness offered the North, the opportunity to confront the evil of slavery. Frederick Douglass believed, even hoped, that the secessionists' headlong rush toward disunion and the resulting political crisis would lead the federal government to take some form of military action against the rebellious states of the South, and that military action would inevitably result in the end of slavery. By the beginning of 1863, Douglas's hopes would be realized, but only after two years that were both disappointing and astonishing. Few events in American history match the drama and significance of emancipation in the midst of the Civil War. In April 1861, Ohio Congressman Joshua Giddings would write to his abolitionist comrade in the Senate, Charles Sumner, and declare with certainty that, quote, the first gun fired at Fort Sumter rang out the death knell of slavery. But equally vehement opposition came from conservative, conservative Democrats as well as many moderate Republicans. Representative Aaron Harding of Kentucky spoke for many when he insisted that the federal government had no power to take anyone's quote-unquote property. Harding maintained that, quote, the war should have nothing to do with the institution of slavery. Let slavery alone. It will take care of itself. But events steadily overtook such unrealistic thinking, and through 1861 and into 1862, federal emancipation policies evolved in relation to intensifying military concerns. By the spring and summer of 1862, with decisive battlefield success still remaining elusive, Congress and President Lincoln began to address emancipation more aggressively. What we'd like to do in this new story arc is trace the evolution of the government's ideas and policies about slavery and emancipation. But our focus will be Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which we believe was the most revolutionary pronouncement ever signed by an American president, 
as it struck the legal shackles from four million black slaves and set in the nation firmly on the path that would lead to the total abolition of slavery within three more years. No other single document, except perhaps the Gettysburg Address, has done so much to fix Abraham Lincoln in the constellation of American history as the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln himself believed that, quote, As affairs have turned, it is the central act of my administration and the great event of the 19th century, end quote. But debate has raged since the day of the release of the preliminary proclamation over what its meaning was to be and what Lincoln's real intentions in issuing it were. Much of the debate was, and still is, centered upon Lincoln himself. This was, after all, the man who had asserted that his paramount goal with regard to the war was always to save the Union and not to do anything one way or the other about slavery unless the doing of it would assist the federal government in restoring the Union. Critics then and since have also pointed out the proclamation's apparent limitations, arguing that it's a dry legal document that applied only to those regions over which the federal forces exercised no immediate power. But the unkindest cut at the proclamation surely came from the hands of Columbia University professor Richard Hofstadter, who in 1948 insisted that Lincoln was, quote, never much troubled about the Negro, that the Emancipation Proclamation, quote, had all the moral grandeur of a bill of lading, and that it accomplished nothing because it was intended to accomplish nothing, quote, beyond its propaganda value. The influence of Hofstetter's easily repeatable quip about the moral grandeur of a bill of lading has been felt down to the present day. Some of this is due to a conscious effort on the part of some to diminish Lincoln, but much of it, we believe, was and still is fueled by a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of the proclamation. There was a reason Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation in the language of a legal brief, and we'll get to that reason. But despite the debate over what its meaning was to be, or what Lincoln's real intentions in issuing it were, the phrase, and henceforward forever shall be free, has resounded down through the years, and we think marks the proclamation as the most far-reaching accomplishment of any American president. The proclamation's impact on the war and on slaves in the South was no less real despite its legal dullness, since it was understood by one and all that after January 1st, 1863, every forward movement of the federal armies and navies would be a liberating step. The proclamation also served as an open invitation to slaves to flee at every opportunity to Union forces, and even more important, it authorized the enlistment of black soldiers in the armed forces of the United States. It was all well and good for Hofstetter to sit in his ivory tower at Columbia University in 1948 and nastily compare the Emancipation Proclamation to a bill of lading. But back in the day, to former slaves who had embraced freedom and understood the human pain through which it was achieved, well, they recognized, they realized that something of great consequence, something important was happening. For example, at a contraband camp in Washington, 
where a crowd of six hundred black men, women, and children gathered to sing and testify through most of the evening of December 31st, 1862. In chorus after chorus of Go Down Moses, they announced the significance of their exodus. One newly supplied verse concluded with, Go down, Abraham, away down Dixie's land. Tell Jeff Davis to let my people go. And in between songs, members of the group stood up and told personal stories of their experiences as slaves. And then, at two minutes before midnight, in hopeful anticipation, the entire assembly knelt on the ground in silent prayer. Let my people go, go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. We need not always weep and mourn. Let my people go. In December 1861, the African-American newspaper correspondent George E. Stevens could be found among Union troops on duty in the slave South, and as he considered his present circumstances, Stevens' thoughts turned to images of past revolutions. The soldiers around him were from New England, and that reminded him of Puritans and of the Puritan army that Oliver Cromwell led against the English king during that civil war in the 17th century. To George Stevens, that earlier historical era seemed in many ways to parallel the time he himself was living through. But one key element prominent in that past seemed to be completely missing in the present. The modern-day revolution, to Stevens, seemed to lack a resolute revolutionary leader. And so he observed that, quote, We have no Cromwell. And truth be told, Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party as a whole did not incline toward revolution. Yes, Lincoln and his party were committed to altering American, or specifically Southern, society by putting slavery on the road to eventual extinction, but very few Republicans relished the prospect of imposing change through radical measures. Most instead preferred the kind of transformation that was measured and gradual. And if such slow and careful change required an assisting push, the methods of normal peacetime politics could apply it. Lincoln and the Republicans had accepted war in early 1861 because the alternative, watching both their cause and their cherished republic disintegrate, was unacceptable. But unlike Frederick Douglass, they didn't view the war as an instrument of progress, much less of radical revolution. Most Republicans initially expected, or at least hoped, that the war needed to restore the Union would be brief in duration and limited in scope. They believed the federal government had no choice but to respond firmly to the rebellion of certain slave states, but at the same time, it must also avoid doing anything 
that unnecessarily antagonized the South's white population and therefore made reunification more difficult. That was the policy of conciliation, and the Republican Party, the federal government, and the Union Army and Navy altered that policy only in response to the pressure of events. And even then, they did so at first only hesitantly, incrementally, step by step. They turned their sights on slavery in a deliberate, determined manner only once they concluded that doing so offered the sole means of winning the war. Only, that is, when the adversary eventually proved more determined, united, powerful, and able than anticipated, and the war became more difficult, costly, and protracted than expected. And only after the slaves themselves had demonstrated in action that their emancipation could empower the Union war effort. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the start of the secession crisis through the war's first stages, Abraham Lincoln stated and reiterated his promise not to interfere with slavery within the southern states where it already existed. More than two months before he took office, President-elect Lincoln sent a letter to his former political colleague, Alexander Stevens of Georgia, who in December 1860 was still committed to the Union. Lincoln promised Stevens and his constituents that the incoming administration would do nothing to endanger slavery in Georgia or any other state. Southerners, the letter said, had no cause to fear that the new president, quote, would directly or indirectly interfere with their slaves or with them about their slaves, end quote. When the cotton states of the Lower South announced their departure nonetheless, Lincoln continued to utter similar assurances, first in hopes of avoiding war, and later in hopes of bringing the war to an early end. Lincoln stood by that promise even after the Confederate bombardment of Fort Sumter. In calling for volunteers to put down the rebellion, Lincoln charged prospective Union soldiers to exercise, 
quote, the utmost care to avoid any destruction of or interference with property in the South. However, none of these promises and cautions signified any decrease in Lincoln's abhorrence of slavery. Admittedly, when he assumed the presidency, he was no abolitionist. He believed in the inherent inequality of blacks and whites, and he doubted that free blacks and whites could live together in peace and harmony, and he therefore supported voluntary colonization, that is, that those slaves who did obtain their freedom should be invited and assisted to leave the country. But Lincoln had also felt, since an early age, that slavery was grounded in, quote, injustice. And, as he would later say, quote, I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel, end quote. And there's no reason to doubt the sincerity of Abraham Lincoln's words there. He also shared the view central to Republican Party policy that slavery was holding back the nation economically and corroding its democratic principles and spirit politically. It was a cancer that needed removing from the body of the republic. But in 1861, Lincoln did not view the military conflict that the slaveholders had forced upon him as the proper scalpel with which to perform the needed surgery. He would use whatever force was necessary to keep the South in or bring it back into the Union. But there would be plenty of opportunity afterward to resume the political struggle to stop slavery's expansion and encourage gradual, voluntary, and compensated emancipation, accompanied by the voluntary immigration of freed blacks overseas. Lincoln reaffirmed his commitment to that limited war policy in December 1861 in his first annual message to Congress. In considering the policy to be adopted in suppressing the insurrection, he said, I have been anxious and careful that the conflict shall not descend into a violent and remorseless revolutionary struggle. The Union must be preserved but we should not be in haste to determine that radical and extreme measures are indispensable to preserving it. Lincoln's support of this policy of limited war reflected his views on two subjects. One, the nature of the United States federal system of government, and two, the practical demands of winning the war. Lincoln and his party subscribed to an interpretation of the U.S. Constitution that was shared by nearly all of the country's political establishment. And in that view, the government in Washington had no right to act directly against slavery in the states where it already existed. The power to do that rested solely with the states themselves. At least as important for Lincoln as that legal doctrine were the practical considerations of military victory as he understood them. During the secession crisis and during the early stages of the war, Lincoln presumed, as did other Republicans, that most residents of the seceded states were Unionists at heart. They had, Lincoln believed, simply been stampeded or bullied by Southern fire-eaters into allowing their states to leave the Union. From that assumption, Lincoln presumed the need to defend and restore the Union without giving any unnecessary offense to the supposedly loyal Southern white majority. Only such a policy, he believed, would allow the Union-loving majority in the South to regain the political initiative and bring the rebellion to a swift end. In the meantime, Lincoln also felt sure, 
Only this circumspect policy of limited war that he advocated could keep the people of the Union solidly behind him and the military effort to suppress the rebellion. You see, even in the country's free states, nearly half of the voters in 1860 had supported one of his three more conservative opponents, either Northern Democrat Stephen Douglas or Southern Democrat John C. Breckinridge or John Bell of the newly formed Compromise Above All Constitutional Union Party. Fifty-four percent of the voters of the free states had proved enough to send Lincoln to the White House but he knew he would need the active support of a much larger proportion of the Union's populace in order to prosecute and win the war. Lincoln also knew that his party's political support was almost non-existent in the four slave states that remained within the Union, and he considered the continued loyalty of those states absolutely crucial. Lincoln confided to a fellow Illinois Republican in September 1861 that, quote, I think to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game. Kentucky gone, we cannot hold Missouri, nor is, I think, Maryland. These all against us, and the job on our hands is too large for us. We would as well consent to separation at once, including the surrender of this capital. That belief on Lincoln's part gave the political representatives of Kentucky and the other border states outsized influence on the federal government's policy. That leverage became apparent within a few days of the First Battle of Manassas. On July 25, 1861, more than three months into the war, the U.S. Congress passed a resolution flatly denying any intention, quote, of overthrowing or interfering with the rights of established institutions of those states then in rebellion. Federal forces would fight solely, quote, to defend and maintain the supremacy of the Constitution and to preserve the Union with all the dignity, equality, and rights of the several states unimpaired. Both of the authors of this resolution came from slaveholding states, Senators John Crittenden from Kentucky and Andrew Johnson from Tennessee. Both men had rejected secession, but they sharply distinguished between the issues of slavery and union. They would strive to uphold the latter. They would not fight to end the former. Republicans held a considerably more negative view of slavery than did those two Upper South politicians, but they nonetheless voted overwhelmingly in support of the Crittenden-Johnson resolution. The Senate approved it by a vote of 35 to 5, while the House indicated its agreement with even greater unity. 119 of its members voted for it, only two voted against it. Abolitionists, black and white, condemned the refusal to touch slavery as both morally and practically bankrupt. They brushed aside hopes that it would placate Confederate slaveholders or even seriously divide their ranks. Frederick Douglass warned that Lincoln underestimated Southern slaveholders' support for the Confederacy. Douglass insisted that, quote, the ties that bind slaveholders together are stronger than all other ties, end quote. Counting on any significant fraction of them to help save the Union was therefore hopeless. Douglas asserted that, quote, the safety of the government can be attained only in one way, and that was by rendering the slaveholders powerless. 
To do that, Douglas and others argued, the federal government must strike directly and forcefully at the source of their power, the source of their economic and military power, that is, slavery. Frederick Douglass said, quote, The Negro is the key of the situation, the pivot upon which the whole rebellion turns. End quote. Anyone who doubted that should simply listen to the rebels themselves, he said. Listen to them boast of how slaves performed all variety of labor in direct support of their war effort, of how slaves kept working on the southern home front so that white soldiers could go off to war. Douglas argued that slave labor would continue to empower the Confederate cause so long as, quote, the national government refuses to turn this mighty element of strength into one of weakness. The abolitionist newspaper, Anti-Slavery Standard, summed up that message by saying, success in the war without emancipation is a military impossibility. That seemed so obviously true to Frederick Douglass that he felt sure that the mainstream Republican Party leadership would eventually come to accept it. He wrote that the American people and the federal government may refuse to recognize this reality for a time, but surely in the end, quote, the inexorable logic of events will force it upon them. While the inexorable logic of events unfolded, in the meantime, the era's closest approximations to Oliver Cromwell would be found in the Republican Party's more radical wing. The radicals shared much with the abolitionists, strongly condemning slavery on moral grounds and openly sympathizing with the plight of the slaves. One of them was Illinois Congressman Owen Lovejoy, whose abolitionist brother had died at the hands of a mob some years earlier. Lovejoy declared that if you, quote, put every crime perpetuated among men into a moral crucible and dissolve and combine them all, and the resulting amalgam is slaveholding. One of the radical Republicans' wartime leaders in the House of Representatives was a flinty Pennsylvanian, Thaddeus Stevens. More than one observer would eventually compare him to both Cromwell and the 18th century French revolutionary leader, Maximilien Robespierre. Stevens did not support the Crittenden-Johnson resolution promising not to interfere with slavery during the war. Like Frederick Douglass, Stevens was sure that war and the requirements of victory would drive the federal government to launch an assault upon slavery. As 1861 wore on, congressional radicals, including Stevens, Lovejoy, Michigan's Zechariah Chandler, Ohio's Benjamin Wade and Joshua Giddings, Indiana's George Julian, and Massachusetts' Charles Sumner, advanced the same argument that abolitionists did, that Union military success required that the federal government lay its hands upon slavery. They believed that military considerations were the firmest grounds on which to urge the adoption of government policies that reflected their fundamental convictions regarding slavery and the slaveholders' power. In other words, they saw quite clearly that military considerations were the best way to approach this matter of getting the government to adopt anti-slavery policies. Emancipation, Charles Sumner counseled his allies, should, quote, 
be presented strictly as a measure of military necessity rather than on grounds of philanthropy, end quote. And the wartime logic of events made such arguments steadily more compelling. Lack of decisive success on the battlefield pointed to the need to reinforce Union strength while reducing the resources of the enemy. Every federal advance carried Union troops deeper into the South and into closer contact with slaves, and thereby into an ever more direct appreciation of the value of slavery to the rebels' war effort. As the war drove home these realities, abolitionists and radical Republicans found themselves receiving an increasingly positive public reception. At the start of 1861, Frederick Douglass's attempt to speak publicly in Syracuse, New York, had provoked a riot. By the end of the year, that same city was welcoming him warmly. Other abolitionists, who had often been treated as pariahs by the majority of the northern public before the war, also found things much changed. Wendell Phillips addressed a huge friendly crowd in New York City, and he, William Lloyd Garrison, and other prominent abolitionists found the same kind of reception at the nation's capital and nearly everywhere else in the North. Meanwhile, every Confederate victory led thousands of citizens in the free states to call upon the government to take a harder line on slavery. The U.S. Senate received ten petitions to that effect on a single day in January of 1862. By that summer, the New York Tribune found itself inundated with letters criticizing the Lincoln administration for its timidity towards slavery and the slaveholders. In August 1862, after McClellan's failure on the peninsula, Ohio's moderate Republican senator, John Sherman, in a remarkable letter to his more conservative brother, Union Army General William Tecumseh Sherman, said that, quote, You can form no conception of the change of opinion here as to the Negro question. Men of all parties who now appreciate the magnitude of the contest and who are determined to preserve the unity of the government at all hazards, agree that we must seek the aid and make it the interests of the Negroes to help us. Nothing but our party divisions and our natural prejudice has kept us from using them as allies in the war, to be used for all purposes in which they can advance the cause of the country. End quote. Senator Sherman went on to tell his brother that, quote, I am prepared, for one, to meet the broad issue of universal emancipation. Others also began to see the logic of and recognize the mounting public support for the government directly confronting slavery. One of those people was Benjamin Butler, a Democrat, a savvy Massachusetts politician commissioned as a general in order to help raise troops and sustain support for the war in his state. By chance, it was Butler who commanded the Union-held Fort Monroe at the tip of the peninsula in eastern Virginia, where three Virginia slaves escaped from their owner in May 1861. And that's where we're going to leave things for this episode. That seems like a good start to this story arc, and this seems like a good spot to end this show. But we'll pick right back up here at Fort Monroe at the start of the next episode. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Fall of the House of Dixie, The Civil War, and the Social Revolution that Transformed the South by Bruce Levine. 
This is our second book recommendation from Bruce Levine, the first being Half Slave and Half Free. And like that previous selection, The Fall of the House of Dixie is not only great history, but great writing. It's a joy to read, as Levine chronicles the way a war started to preserve the status quo morphed into a second American Revolution. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we wrap up this show, a big thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Austin, Toby, and Rocco. Thanks, guys. Thanks also to Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Emancipation Proclamation. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.